This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the very big international news this morning is that Alexei Navalny, who is known for being an anti-corruption activist, a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, has died in prison. Now, according to the statement put out by Russian prison officials, he went for a walk, uh, didn't feel well or collapsed, lost consciousness, and then died as a result of that. So not a lot of information as to what happened right now, but it has been a very long journey to get to this point of different prisons and just still being outspoken along the way. So we want to talk about the significance of that this morning. Beth Noble is with us now, former CBS Moscow Bureau Chief and Professor of Journalism at Fordham University. Beth, thanks for being here. Yeah, uh, it's a sad story, but I'm I'm very happy to be with you, nevertheless. Yeah, thank you very much. What What did you think when you heard that this morning? You know, I I woke up um, and people had texted me the news, um, and I was really sad, but not at all surprised because Alexei Navalny has been so incredibly brave uh, in going up against the regime of Russian President Vladimir Putin and challenging the system. And he, he really put his life in grave danger by trying to go up against Putin. What had he gone through the last few years? Well, you know, he's been, in, you know, they've thrown multiple uh, legal cases against him, uh, you know, over the last 10 years. But in 2020, Ru- uh, Russian security agents actually put a nerve agent on his underwear in a hotel in Siberia, and Navalny fell critically ill. And amazingly, doctors saved his life and got him to Germany for treatment. And then in 2021, Navalny decided to go back to Russia. And everybody said, you know, Alexei, if you go back to Russia, they're going to throw you in prison and you're never going to come out. And he was like, you know what? I can't oppose Putin from abroad. It's not the right thing to do. I'm going to go and, and, and put, you know, take my chances. And so they literally arrested him at the airport when he returned to Russia, threw him in prison, and his treatment has been really awful. He's been in solitary confinement many times. He's been denied uh, medical treatment many times. And, uh, you know, the last thing that they did to Navalny was to send him to a prison in the Russian Arctic where it's bitterly cold and where the conditions were really terrible. Now, you've clearly, Beth, covered this story for a long time. Why was this so important to Alexei Navalny to go through all that and still keep fighting? This is a man of great principle. I'm not sure that he started out that way when he first started to get involved in politics. But, you know, in fighting corruption, he saw just how bad it was. One of the things that he did to become popular with the Russian people was to do a series of videos, which he said was exposing the corruption of Russian officials, like giant houses that they had built for themselves with incredible luxury. 
And he just said, you know, this is not what we should have in our democracy. We should have freedom. We should be able to express ourselves. We should expect that our officials are not going to enrich themselves while the people are are poor and suffering. And he became a man of great principle. And there aren't really a lot of people in the world who would do what he did, which is to stand up to someone who's almost a dictator. Now, was the Russian president, was Vladimir Putin afraid of him? You know, he must have been afraid of him because of the way that Navalny was treated, thrown in prison or poisoned. Um, You know, you can look at the Putin regime and think that it's very strong or you can argue that it's actually very weak the way that it holds on to power. So I think that Putin did have reasons um, to fear Navalny because Navalny was so um, moralistic and so principled, which is sort of the opposite of what Vladimir Putin is. And so what now? Is there anybody who can carry on that work? So first off, Navalny's team, you know, is not even admitting that this is true. They've sent someone off to the prison to make sure that it's true. His wife is actually uh, attending a security conference now in Munich and so is with um, the American vice president, uh, Harris. I'm I'm sure there are Canadian officials at this meeting as well. Um, And so the international community is going to have to talk about how it wants to uh, respond. But I don't know that there is anybody in Russia that has quite, um, you know, quite the gravitas of Navalny. And I think we're going to have to see if one of his deputies now tries to step into the role of leading this opposition or if what happened to Navalny is enough to scare off anyone. Right. So much pressure on this. Uh, Beth, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. We appreciate that. That's Beth Noble. Beth is a former CBS Moscow bureau chief and now professor of journalism at Fordham University talking about the death of Alexei Navalny. You've heard the name, right? You've heard the name for quite a few years now about he being the most outspoken opposition politician to Russian President Vladimir Putin. He had been poisoned by a nerve agent, had miraculously recovered from that. He had been charged with embezzlement, with fraud, with all sorts of things. And now Russian prison officials, they put out a statement today saying, a couple hours ago actually, saying that he'd been out for a walk, uh, fell down, lost consciousness, and died as a result. And right now that is all uh, the world knows as we wait, as Beth points out, for more information on that. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, right there means it's Friday morning and we're talking with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simeon. Fortunately, some traditions in this province are still respected, not least beginning on Friday with the village people. That's right. We would never let people down with that village <laughs> people song. And plus, we get to hear from you. That's a great tradition that we have, too, because we're going to talk hey, about... the village people, come on. I know where the Vaughan, listener is going to vote if it's people. a free vote on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Vaughn. It's all about you, of course. We want to hear about your thoughts on the BC United housing plan. Yeah, so this doesn't happen very often because, uh, you know, government has control of the agenda and gets to do what it says it's going to do. And the opposition is kind of usually out there saying, well, here's what we think is wrong with it. You don't very often get the opposition getting ahead of the government on something, but it happened this week. So uh, the New Democrats, David Eby, have been talking for some time about a rent to own plan to help first time home buyers get into actually owning houses or places, townhouses, condos. 
they've only been talking about it, and they did their big housing plan this week, BC Build, and they said, no, no, we're still working on that one. So uh, Thursday, uh, Kevin Falcon and BC United announce they're going to do it, and they explained how it would happen. So it's a fairly innovative idea, rent to own. And the essence of it is this, the big challenge getting your first place is the down payment because places are so expensive. You know, might qualify if you're both working for a mortgage or even one of you is working for a mortgage, but you got to do the down payment. Rent to own is essentially a government-backed way to give you the down payment. You buy your place, you get your mortgage, the down payment is covered by rent. You pay rent on the place for three years. And at the end of the three years, you've paid enough rent that that translates into your down payment and you move to becoming a homeowner. You still got a big mortgage, but lots of people face that. But the government has essentially backed your down payment. Uh, this is uh, the, the Falcon announcement. Obviously, you would have to become premier to do it, but that's how it would work, and that's how a rent-to-own scheme works. There's two or three other things that BC United would do. They would waive the big property transfer tax for first-time buyers. You don't, you don't have to, on top of everything else, pay the provincial government like $20,000 in, in property transfer taxes which most people end up having to roll into their mortgage. And the other thing is the government will make partnerships with developers that are actually building housing projects to set aside 15% of the units for first-time buyers only under this scheme. And the government would also waive the provincial sales tax on the cost of building the housing so that there's another incentive to get going and start building stuff. So uh, it's fairly innovative. I was quite struck at how rare it is, Simi, for the government to be talking about something and the opposition actually to get there ahead of them. So I think on hmm. this one, uh, it sounds like a really good idea. It's such a good idea, Simi, that the New Democrats will probably steal it. That's, <laughs> that's what happens to opposition parties that right. you know actually come up with really good ideas. I'm curious, the rent to own one, though, I wonder if another way of looking at that, I was trying to wrap my head around it, how that would work. I guess it's like buying a house with 0% down, with yes. no money down. Yes. And why would the developer allow you to do that. Yeah, that's and my question. This is this is the where the government comes in. Essentially, the government will back up the rent to own plan for 3 years. So the government will say you you bought the house it's yours, you pay this rent for 3 years and at the end of it you've covered your down payment and we now transition to you being a standard homeowner with a mortgage. The way the developer can be sure that he or she will see their money is because the government is going to back that part of the plan. If somebody defaults on their rent, the, the homeowner is going to lose their place, right? But the government will be there to step in and guarantee it. The homeowner will effectively sign a contract 
agreeing to pay the rent for three years, the government will agree that at the end of that three years, your rent constitutes your down payment. But behind it all, there would be an element of provincial government guarantee. Now, you know, Kevin Falcon said, obviously, there needs to be an element of government in this. But he points out that it's not like the government building the housing, having to go through the whole approval process that now goes on with BC housing, which is cumbersome and bureaucratic. And we know lots of promises have been made about what BC housing is going to deliver, but it's delivered far fewer units than the NDP has promised. So, you know, I guess we'll see how it works. I haven't looked around to see if anybody else does this this way, but it strikes me as the kind of thing that somebody might say, well, you know, it's rare enough, but it sounds like the opposition has a pretty good idea. And maybe uh, David Eby will be asking his housing ministry, where the hell is our plan to do this? Because Eby himself has been saying this is coming, that we are going to have, meaning the provincial government, is going to have a rent-to-own plan too, because this is one of, as you know, Simi, one of the biggest obstacles to getting into the housing market now is coming up with that down payment because uh, the guarantees are higher than they used to be for that. So it's harder to get together the down payment unless, you know, and... uh, Falcon referred to it yesterday. Uh, if you got the bank of mom and dad standing behind you, but not everybody's in that situation. And that's why some people are having an almost impossible time to crack yeah. into the first time buyer market. All right, we're back talking with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning. Now, Vaughn, you said this is a bit of an odd one, but you know, there was a time when the public didn't know anything about mandate letters. I'm not sure the public, not everyone in the public actually even knows what these are. No, this is a real outrage too. <laughs> so here's what a mandate letter is. When the, when a premier appoints cabinet ministers, each minister gets a mandate letter. And it's a letter from the premier saying, here's what I expect you to work on and to do, right? And if you've, if you've seen a mandate letter, if you could see a mandate letter, uh, you'd know what the minister's priorities were. If the minister were later fired or replaced or shuffled, you'd know maybe why, where they failed. And you'd also have a pretty good sense of the government's priorities from these letters. And we know all this in British Columbia, CIMI, because mandate letters are public here in BC. And they've been public for 20 years, more than 20 years. Four premiers, Gordon Campbell, Christy Clark, John Horgan, and David Eby, have all made their mandate letters publicly. Uh, They help us understand government priorities. They help call ministers to account. They help the public here in BC judge whether or not the government has fulfilled its priorities, and they're a good thing. They've been disclosed here in British Columbia for, as I say, more than 20 years with no bad effects on the functioning of government and they've furthered the public interest. And here is what is outrageous about this. So earlier this month, Simi, the Supreme Court of Canada made a ruling about cabinet mandate letters. Premier Doug Ford of Ontario was refusing to release them, and the court ruled that he didn't have to. The high court said Basically, the public isn't entitled to see these things. They might reveal the government agenda. Well, yes, they would. 
they might reveal the government agenda. That's they might the idea. The public like, that's, that's the whole exactly. idea. But the part, no, no. Yeah, by the way, the Supreme Court of Canada decision on this was written by a former cabinet secretary to the government of Ontario, Mike Harris's government. So this secrecy all woven into public life in Canada and the view that the public isn't entitled to know anything except what we tell them is what's depressing. But here's what's really depressing. The B.C. government went to court and supported Ontario's refusal to release the letters. Really? Now, why would they do that when they do it here? In fact, the B.C. government could have struck a blow for openness by going to the Supreme Court of Canada and saying, you know what, Your Honours, we've been revealing these letters in B.C. for 20 years with no negative effects, and it helps the public understand government, right? They didn't do that. They went to court and argued for secrecy. And, of course, the impact of arguing for secrecy on this kind of thing is that with the high court ruling, Simi, the BC government no longer has to release those letters. It can say we're doing it out of the goodness of our heart or our belief in openness and transparency, or they could say, pa, you can't have the letters anymore because the high court has said the public isn't entitled to know these things at all. I find that outrageous and depressing at the same time, but it is an example, Simi, of just how secretive the business of governing is in this country. And I don't understand the secrecy around this because I've always viewed them as a bit of a PR exercise, right? That yeah, sure. An opportunity for the new premier to say, here's what's important to me and to let the public know that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, cabinet meetings are secret. I would assume that's where they actually get their marching orders. Yeah, I think that's true. The cabinet meetings are secret because of the long-standing way that our government works, which is that when the government makes a decision, it's final and everybody stands behind it. And if a minister doesn't agree with that, he or she resigns. And so the idea is that when you have a cabinet meeting, they don't actually keep transcripts. Everyone can argue their positions, but at the end of the day, the premier decides and the government decides, and that's the decision. So that's the argument. But to know ahead of time what the agenda is for the government, to have some sense of its priorities. I mean, I can give you an example. Uh, last month, Premier David Eby appointed Andrew Mercier as a Minister of State for Sustainable Forestry, and he gave, Eby immediately released his mandate letter. And when you read it, the number one job for Mercier is to deal with a huge problem in the forest sector, which is all kinds of small and large operators that can't get their hands on fiber. Uh, you can't run a value-added forest company if you can't get wood for it, pulp mills, everything. That's his priority. So, you know, when we come to the election or as time goes on, we can say, well, how much progress is he making, right? It's, it's you're right, Simi, it's kind of a PR thing. We've made a priority of this. But it also allows the public and the news media and the opposition to go, is this guy delivering the fiber, right? It's a fair question. And, and that's where, you're right, the letters tell you, advertise the government is yeah. on the job. They also allow you to swing around at the end and say, how are they doing, right? You, you can make a comparison between the objectives and results. The Supreme Court of Canada is appalled at the idea. It's right there in the decision. It will give people a sense of the government's agenda. 
and allow them to make comparisons with results. You wouldn't want that happening in Canada. My God, what has this world come to? I don't understand because you could say the exact same thing about the throne speech. Yeah, sure. No, exactly. I know. It's just part of, well, you know, (laughs) as I said, it's very depressing that we have actually in this province struck a small blow for openness and transparency. Our premiers, four of them now, should be proud that we do that. And instead, David Eby goes through his lawyers to the Supreme Court of Canada and says, well, you know, we actually think uh, a, a secretive, a rulingness in favor of secretiveness would be good. Um, you know, he didn't go and say, we've been doing this in BC for 20 years and all this nonsense about yeah. it betraying cabinet confidences or harm. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Being good government, we're the laboratory for this practice. And in general, it serves both the public interest and the effectiveness of good government. Vaughn, thank you for that. (laughs) Bye-bye, Simi. That's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. The U.S. President Joe Biden once warned Vladimir Putin against allowing anything to happen to Alexei Navalny. And this morning now we hear that the critic of Putin has died in prison. So what is the reaction? Well, for more on that and things that happened in the United States this week, we are joined by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is the reaction to what seems like at this point the death of Alexei Navalny? Sure. Uh, So the reaction is coming far beyond uh, uh, the U.S. boundaries. We've heard from American officials. We've heard from Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie. We've heard from European officials. And all of them are are kind of singing the same tune here in that this is a sign uh, of of a growing, uh, aggressive Putin regime. Uh, in Russia. We heard from Vice President Kamala Harris earlier today at the Munich Security Conference uh, saying that this is a sign of Putin's brutality uh, and, and making the claim that Russia and Putin is behind the death of Alexei Navalny, even though that proof doesn't exist. But that is something that is now being kind of picked up and echoed across the world stage here. Um, th- there's grave concern as to what what the fallout from this will be. Okay, and so Vladimir Putin was quite vocal this week. I know there was that whole interview with Tucker Carlson, but then he went on to say uh, a lot of other things publicly this week, including that he said he prefers U.S. President Biden. 
Well, he sees that that U.S. President Biden, uh, you know, may be the better choice for Russia. You know, we don't know what it means. There have been some who say that Donald Trump is ultimately uh, the president that that Russia may prefer. Uh, but, you know, Joe Biden, you know, for whatever reason or, or, or the other, um, you know, Putin has has said that this is in the best interest of Russia. I think we need to kind of broaden this out. Uh, just a couple of years ago, Joe Biden made a statement uh saying that if Alexei Navalny died in Russian custody, that, that Vladimir Putin and Russia would pay significant consequences. Those are going to be words that are likely replayed over and over again, that may be replayed over and over towards uh, Vladimir Putin. That could change the calculus of whatever this kind of you know comment from Vladimir Putin is, because this is a significant blow outside of Russia, but inside of Russia, because it shows that there are no critics. Criticism and opposition is not allowed. Uh, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and, and there's going to be significant pushback from the White House on that. All right. So we wait for more developments on that today. Let's talk about what else is happening today in U.S. politics. And we know that once again, the former president, Donald Trump, is is back in court. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this is going to be a big one. Uh, he hasn't arrived in New York. We're not sure if he's coming to the city for this or not. Uh, but there, there's going to be a decision rendered uh, to how much money Donald Trump owes in a civil business fraud trial that was brought by New York State Attorney General Letitia James. The judge in this case already ruled last year that fraud was committed in this uh, you know, attempt to overinflate valued assets to secure better loans. Um, and the numbers could be big. This could be $370 million plus that Trump would owe roughly 20% of his uh, of his estimated wealth. There's also a chance here that we could see the Trump business empire pulled from the New York City skyline, ending um, you know his, his relationship with the city that started it all. So there's some big financial, but also social impacts to whatever the judge comes out with today. Okay, and that's just one of the cases, right? Like quite a few of them seem to be coming to a head in the next week or so. Yeah, I, well, I mean, look, just yesterday we found out that the first trial uh, of the campaign season is going to get started on March 25th uh, with the Stormy Daniel hush money payments, uh, the, the the judge dismissing the attempts to try and get this case thrown out. Uh, so this is one guaranteed trial. We're also expecting the Supreme Court to uh, uh, to deal with the appeal from Donald Trump and the kind of push to move forward from the special counsel to whether or not Trump uh, is, is immune. Uh, he appealed that decision from the 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 District of Columbia that said that he's not immune. The Supreme Court's going to deal with the appeal. That could then lead to a potential March, April, or May case in the election subversion trial. So this is the moment that everybody's been watching as to when these kind of legal hurdles would start being hit by Trump's feet as he runs towards 2024. Okay, and let's talk about this whole FBI informant being charged or with making false statements. What is this about? So look, this was somebody that uh, had told the FBI that he had information that Burisma, uh, a Ukrainian energy company that had ties to Hunter Biden, had made millions of dollars uh, in payments to both Hunter Biden uh, and Joe Biden. And Republicans tried to say, look, there are reasons here to believe that when Joe Biden was a vice president all these years ago, um, that, that something nefarious may have happened. And it turns out the information that this informant gave to the FBI that resulted in Republicans moving forward 
forward with an impeachment attempt on Joe Biden is fake, is false. Uh, he's now facing two different charges, one for lying to investigators and number two for submitting falsified documents linked to the lie that he told investigators. And this is a giant question now. What are Republicans going to do moving forward? This was the basis of the impeachment push. They're trying to say, look, we have other information. We have bank records. We have proof, none of which has been exposed publicly. Um, you know, so this could be another hit for a Republican Party that has been accused for months now of not actually being able to accomplish anything and falling flat every time they try to target um, President Biden. Okay, so this person, this is the person that they were kind of basing all these stories on, right? Yeah, this is somebody that 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 told Republicans that he had all of this information. And it turned out the information he had was just a mishmash of different conversations that he had tried to piece together. And ultimately, he did this because he wasn't happy with the fact that Joe Biden was going to be the nominee and the likely uh, uh, winner in the election in 2020. And this was all done kind of out of spite or in spite of Joe Biden. Uh, and Republicans bought into it. And the question is, what do they do now going forward? And if they try to move forward with impeachment, are they going to have any credibility with it? And does it potentially cost them later on this year when they're defending their majority? Oh, things are always interesting. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. I figured sooner or later when it comes to popular diets, you know, sooner or later, some researchers would tell me that, you know, eating white bread, white rice and never missing dessert would be really good for you. I I still keep out hoping that that's going to happen. But for some people, it sounds like the Atlantic diet might be their version of that. Is it possible that red meat, pork, wine, potatoes could all be good for you? We're going to get this explained to us right now. Dr. Joe Schwartz is with us, director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society. Dr. Schwartz, thank you for being here. Hey, good morning. What is the Atlantic diet? Well, the Atlantic diet uh, is the diet that is consumed in northern Portugal and in northern Spain. And uh, because they are, these areas are on the Atlantic coast, it has come to be called the Atlantic diet. And uh, there have been a couple of recent publications uh, about this, but um, uh, somewhat questionable, to tell you the truth. You know, there's so much, so much published about food, which is, is understandable because, uh, of course, we spend our life talking about food, eating food thinking about what we should eat or what we should have eaten, and then we start planning the next meal. You know, our, our, our life really revolves around food, which is it's kind of understandable because it's the only raw material that ever goes into our body. So we are constructed of what we eat. So obviously there is some importance here. But the question is, what should we be eating of the thousands of foods that are uh, available out there? And over the years, of course, researchers have uh, addressed this problem and have looked at uh, diets around the world to see whether or not disease patterns could be linked to diet. And of course, the one that has been in vogue a great deal is the so-called Mediterranean diet. And uh, I mean, that is also a little bit confusing because, of course, there's no one Mediterranean diet. If you look at the map, there are many, many countries around the Mediterranean. And uh, the Italian diet is not the same as the Lebanese diet, and it's not the same as the North African diet. 
But what those diets mostly have in common is that they use a lot of olive oil, they eat a lot of nuts, they eat a lot of vegetables. And, you know, that is certainly whole grains, right? That's like it's, good. And, it's whole, and whole grains, grains. and right. um, they keep things simple on that front. They don't complicate it. Right. All right. Now, of course, because uh, anytime that you publish a paper about diet, it gets a lot of publicity. So uh, researchers in, uh, in Portugal jumped on that bandwagon and took a look at what uh, people are eating in that particular region. And uh, the diet there is actually uh, somewhat different from the Mediterranean diet in the sense that uh, olive oil is not a principal part of the diet and neither are uh, nuts or, or fruits. And they do eat, as you mentioned, red meat and pork and, uh, and fish. Uh, fish, of course, obvious because they are on the Atlantic coast and the most popular fish is cod that, that they eat. Now, interestingly enough, uh, these researchers looked at uh, patients in hospitals, in four different hospitals in Porto, which is a large city in, in, in Portugal, who had had a heart attack. And uh, interviewers questioned them about their past dietary history to see if they could find some sort of link. And um, so they uh, compared what these patients had eaten to uh, a group of people from the same area who had been randomly selected who did not have any heart issues, <clears throat> and they compared their, their diets. And to see how widely they adhered <clears throat> to what has been called this uh, European Atlantic diet, and uh, that is defined as uh, a diet of fish and red meat and dairy and vegetables and legumes and a special kind of vegetable soup called caldo verde, a lot of potatoes, whole wheat uh, grain, whole wheat bread, and wine. And they took a look to see what was the difference in the consumption of these foods between the heart attack patients and, and the, the controls. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was that the, uh, the closer that the, uh, uh, the subjects were to uh, the diet of the uh, control group median, that is, you know, what the uh, foods that were more eaten than others, uh, they found that there was a, a reduced risk of, of heart disease. Now, when they further mined the data, as you know, researchers like to do, they found that if they removed red meat and potatoes, then there was an even greater benefit. So what really we take away from this uh, is that uh, something that we've always known is that the less red meat that we eat and the fewer simple carbohydrates like potatoes, the, the better off we are. But, but Dr. So Schwartz, I think I what, what people yeah. are actually looking for is an excuse and a reason to eat red meat and potatoes. So if there's <laughs> right. any kind of benefit, they think, oh, see, it's okay. Yeah. They said it was okay. Yeah, well, no, they, that, you know, that would be a misinterpretation of this study because while this Atlantic diet does um, contain red meat and, and, and pork and, you know, potatoes, when you factor those out of their diet, then they become healthier. You know, then there, there's less of an association with heart disease. So there really isn't any great revelation in this uh, study, except that it adds some more support to the fact that the more fruits and vegetables that we eat and the less red meat that we eat, uh, the better. But I think many people are misinterpreting this study because they see that this Atlantic diet contains red meat 
but the fact is that that is not the reason that it is healthy, because when you factor out the red meat, uh, you see a greater improvement of health. So all we can say is that consuming legumes and, and vegetables and, in fact, less red meat is the direction that we should go. Now, as far as the wine goes, that is a troublesome point. Why? Because, well, because they did show some benefits, at least in this study, although others have not shown that. But whatever benefit wine may have on cardiovascular disease has to be compared to the carcinogenicity of the alcohol. Because we know for sure, I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that alcohol is a carcinogen. The International Agency for Research on Cancer ranks it in its group one, which means it is a substance known to cause cancer in humans. And uh, we know that there's a link between breast cancer and oral cancers and, and alcohol. So even if there is some benefit to the, our cardiovascular system, mm-hmm. you have to weigh, weigh that against the potential of it playing a role in carcinogenesis. Well, Dr. So, uh, Dr. Yeah. Schwartz, I have to thank you. I have to thank you for that. Okay. We're all out of time, but really appreciate you breaking it all down for us. Thank you. Okay. Have a thank good day. You. That's Dr. Joe Schwartz, director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society. See, there is no magic pill. We want to believe that every time there's new news about a diet here and a diet there. So sure, they think maybe a bit of benefit for red wine to cardiovascular health. But as Dr. Schwartz points out, there's all these other concerns too. And now everybody talks about inflammation and the uh, the alcohol and the inflammation that happens in your body is also a terrible thing for you too, right? But anyway, you want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Abuse takes all different forms. And, and quite often people don't even realize what's happening until it's too late. And then maybe that abuse takes a, a violent or a physical turn. But what about things like coercive behavior? What if your partner you know, withholds finances or controls who you see and when you see them? In the vast majority of physical domestic violence cases, coercive control comes first before that happens. But it's also an area that kind of legally hasn't been really recognized. It often gets overlooked. Can it be done? Can we criminalize coercive behavior in some way? Well, Laurel Collins thinks so. She's the federal NDP deputy critic for family, children, and social development and MP for Victoria. She's actually tabled a private member's bill on this and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. What would this bill do? So the bill is criminalizing coercive and controlling behavior. And um, we know, as you mentioned, that this occurs in, you know, 90 to 95 percent of um, intimate partner, like physical intimate partner violence situations. Um, It is often a precursor to violence. It is also one of the um, greatest risk factors to femicide. And so even in cases where there's been no physical violence uh, in the lead up, it is almost always present um, before a woman is killed um, by her, her partner and or ex-partner. Um, and so it is so critical that we develop tools to intervene um, and to give victims and survivors uh, the support they need. Uh, and so we would be adding to the uh, criminal code to ensure that course of control um, is, is it able to be, prosecuted uh, in a court of law, and that survivors actually have the tools they need to recognize this, to report it, 
and then to get the support they need. Okay, so how would the bill, like, what does the bill do to set that out? How would we criminalize something like coercive control? Do you have to demonstrate it? How do you prove it? Yeah, so, you know, just think about, for an example, um, someone controlling their partner's transportation, or let's say in the case of uh, the Nova Scotia shooter, you know, tragic event, but about 10 years before that, he had a history, of course, of control and uh, intimate partner violence in his relationship. And he had taken the tires off of his girlfriend's car. He changed the locks on their doors to try and prevent her from leaving and taking her stuff. Um, and in that case, you know, they have a shared vehicle. It is a shared house that they live in. The police were aware of what was going on, but there's nothing there that they can arrest him for necessarily. Uh, there isn't a, you know incident of uh, physical violence. And what we know about intimate partner violence is it is patterns of behavior. Our incident-based approach to it that, you know, looks for bruises or broken bones um, can go a small way uh, forward. But really, um, if we want to capture domestic violence um, and intimate partner violence, we need to look at these patterns of abuse and we need to give um, victims and police the tools they need to intervene before uh, that violence happens. Okay, so then using that example about, um, you know, the Nova Scotia situation, how do you write the law so that what was done in that case would be something that the police would be able to step in? Yeah, so the the law that we uh, have put forward, um, that I've put forward as my private member's bill, is based on uh, the UK law. And so back in 2015, the UK passed a bill criminalizing course of control. And what it does is it says that um, if someone is having a significant impact on a person that they are connected to. And so those two things are defined. A significant impact means that the person has a reasonable fear of violence or they are having um, the the actions of the other person is having a significant impact on their uh, deterioration of their mental health or physical health. Um, or uh, the person is exerting control in these specific ways um, and things like uh, you know, denying or controlling their access to communication, transportation, um, among many right. other things, well, issuing threats and harassment, etc. Yeah. So wouldn't that also fall under the threatening category? Like, why can't police be like, well, this seems threatening. Therefore, we think you're making threats. Yeah. And, you know, we do have laws in Canada around harassment. What the research shows is that isn't actually capturing. And some of those laws were developed in response to the fact that we know that um Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Domestic violence isn't 
um, being adequately responded to with our criminal justice system. Unfortunately, how that's played out is that still um, people don't have the tools to intervene. And um, those uh, making arrests using those harassment laws has been a challenge. Um, and, you know, you take, for example, the, you know, removing the, the tires from a shared vehicle, um, kind of proving that that is harassment isn't necessarily captured right now and taking away someone's keys or, you know, what we've heard from a lot of um, folks who are newcomers uh, who've experienced this is it's their partner taking their immigration documents or their passport or not being cooperative um, within the context of their, you know, as their sponsor um, and using that as a way to control them. And the thing about this is that it is a pattern of behavior. There are and, and like, and it shows up differently in each relationship, but there are really key signs. Um, and we can, and we've seen this as um, be used effectively in the UK after their uh, initial criminal and course of controlling bill was passed. There was a increase of um, 31% of calls for support. It meant not only were people more aware and were reaching out for support when this type of abuse was happening, um, but then they also saw uh, in the first year, it was something along the lines of just over 4,000 arrests um, and convictions on course of control. And then in the second year, uh, 24,000. And so uh, this is something that we can uh, convict. It is something that we can support uh, victims and survivors to get help in those situations and, and really help them leave those really dangerous situations that they're in. One of the changes that we've made to our bill is um, to extend the time that people are considered connected and so considered to be in a relationship. And what we've heard from frontline organizations and survivors of intimate partner violence is actually the time when they're leaving is the most dangerous. Um, and so we have built into our bill uh, that people are still consider, considered connected if they have been married or common law or dating partners in the past two years um, so that we actually are giving them the tools in the time when they are attempting to leave those situations. Right. Okay. So what has the reaction been like from the other parties for this? You know, I have uh, been really encouraged. We've uh, garnered support from all parties in the House. Um, we also, uh, last week, it was, you know, debating uh, second reading of the bill. And uh, we also got support from all parties to speed it along and bring it to committee rather than having to kind of go through a number of um, legislative steps. We've been able to fast track it to committee. I presented uh, yesterday at committee and we had a, re a really... Um, yeah, meaningful discussion about the ins and outs of the bill and with people from all parties expressing how important this legislation is and uh, how we need to do more to address intimate partner violence and gender-based violence and to end femicide. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time and telling us about it. Thanks so much for having me on. That's Laurel Collins, the MP for Victoria and the NDP critic, a deputy critic for families, children and social development, talking about criminalizing coercive control, kind of doing what the UK has done, as she explained there, uh, and the difference that could make if police had the tools to make more arrests in situations like that. This is Mornings with Simi. There has been a lot of talk the last couple of weeks about changes that could be happening to BC's Land Act. It's been a pretty contentious debate. 
Now, critics are concerned about public access to Crown lands and whether or not this gives a, a veto power to First Nations. And what does all that even mean anyway? Well, the minister responsible, Nathan Cullen, he's been on our show and he's been trying to respond, but there's still been a lot of pushback to this. So because there are still so many questions and concerns, we obviously wanted to talk more about this. Now, Jessica Clogg is the executive director and senior counsel with West Coast Environmental Law. She says these proposed changes aren't necessarily what people think, and she joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Now, I read, Jessica, where you said these proposals could actually be more problematic for First Nations. Why is that? If we go back to 2019, when the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act was passed unanimously uh, in BC, that act contained uh, provisions that would allow uh, ministers to enter into joint or consent-based agreements uh, with First Nations around some aspects of land management in their territories. Now, many of us, uh, including many legal legal commenters and many of our First Nations clients, believed that that would actually be a pathway to start negotiating those agreements. But instead, BC has taken a very narrow, bureaucratic, and slow approach to implementation, BC's uh, interpretation is that they need to amend virtually every statute in BC, like they're proposing to do with the Land Act. And then even after those changes are made to the Land Act to implement these agreements, uh, there would still be a further step where the Crown had to agree to enter into a negotiation. There has to be a cabinet mandate. Uh, BC effectively has to agree uh, before anything would actually happen on the ground. That's why in the last four, five years since DRIPA was passed, we've only seen a vanishingly small number of these agreements. So it's, it's, I th- what do you think that when you hear about the criticism, the concerns that people have about this process and what's happening, what do you think? I've been alarmed and uh, surprised by a lot of the inflammatory rhetoric given that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act passed unanimously with many positive and supportive statements from all sectors, including industry. I fear that the rhetoric we're seeing here is um, based on outdated uh, racist doctrines um, that, through which uh, BC was colonized as if Indigenous nations and their laws and their governments uh, didn't exist. It feels like we're into the silly season in the months leading up to an election and First Nations human rights are being used as a political football. So you think that this actually creates more red tape? The steps that are being taken to amend the the Land Act are, according to BC, a necessary procedural step to implement the joint and consent-based decision-making provisions of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. I have the chance to work uh, every day through our uh, Revitalizing Indigenous Law for Land, Air and Water or VLAW program with nations who are revitalizing their laws, who are ready to um, step up and are stepping up to steward uh, their territories well and to do so um, in consultation and cooperation with BC. The rollout of DRIPA has, quite frankly, been slow uh, and bureaucratic, but these are necessary procedural steps, according to BC, so let's get them done. Okay, but Jessica, what do you say then to people who are concerned? What does this mean for, you know, everyone's access to these same lands? Legally, absolutely nothing will change on the ground once the proposed Land Act amendments are made.
So where do you think that, like, the concern then is what? That people are just imagining it? But what about the fact that if there is an agreement that's entered into with the local First Nations, what does that mean for the rest of the public to have access? What we see, for example, um, where there are existing joint uh, decision-making agreements, for example, on Haida Gwaii, is that you uh, potentially might have a new body there. It's the Haida Gwaii Management Authority. It's got two Haida folks, two provincial folks, and a chair. And now, uh, by legislation, that uh, management um, committee makes certain decisions on Haida Gwaii, like setting the allowable annual cut. It's simply a different way of making um, those statutory decisions in a way that is um, done in consultation and cooperation with uh, the nations who've stirred the, those territories for millennia. Okay, so you think that this wouldn't be any different then, that people will just get used to it? My experience in working with nations who are revitalizing their laws is that uh, I think there's a reasonable expectation that better decisions will be made when we braid together uh, Indigenous uh, law and, and British Columbia law to make decisions together. Are you worried when you see what's happening then with this discussion? Yes, I am. Because we have a 150-plus year legacy of laws that were built up on racist doctrines that assumed that First Nations uh, peoples uh, were less than uh, Europeans. And when I hear the rhetoric right now, it embodies a racist assumption that First Nations um, do not have the ability and capacity and expectation that they will make decisions about their territory in a reasoned way according to their legal traditions. And to see that kind of rhetoric um, saddens me greatly. Uh, I think Canadians are better than that. Are you concerned for the process then with when you hear that rhetoric? Absolutely. The Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act commits BC legally to align laws with the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. In other words, to start overhauling our statutes to root out those racist underpinnings. With rhetoric like that, I fear it has a chilling effect on the necessary work of reconciliation. The word veto keeps getting thrown around a lot, doesn't it? Indeed. Where do you think that comes from then? I believe it's an attempt to misdirect the conversation. The actual legal requirements speak of consultation and cooperation, joint decision-making, agreements for consent-based decision-making. Again, that veto uh, word is like a dog whistle uh, bringing up the sort of racist assumption that uh, First Nations cannot uh, govern, that they are not governments, that they do not have uh, governance rights. And quite frankly, that's disappointing. Uh, are you, have, has there been enough pushback then? Like I know we've seen the minister try to come out and talk about this more and said he's willing to talk about it, but is, is there not enough response, do you think? One of the things that we've seen in focus uh, group testing is that when even a small number of voices are expressing aggressive, uh, racist or inflammatory views, it can silence others. And so that's my greatest fear. But I do believe if we look back at um, all of the positive public statements when the DRIPA Act was first passed, I believe that ultimately British Columbians understand the need for this pathway of reconciliation. Right. But that's where the hard work happens, doesn't it, Jessica? I mean, you kind of alluded to that, too, is that it's great to say we're going to do this. But then when we come down to what it actually means, they we run into some challenges. 
absolutely. If you look at the slow, measured, incremental approach that BC has been taken, uh, has been taking, you know, um, my folks, my, my clients might say it's too slow, but it's certainly not uh, the radical um, and immediate shift that um, some commentators have been suggesting. Okay, so then from your perspective, Jessica, what do you want people to know about all this? I would like people, I wish they could be with me every day um, in Indigenous communities, uh, working with elders, um, growing to understand and revitalize their laws that have cared well for the land for so many years. And to have that, um, that, that faith and that hope that by bringing forward Indigenous legal traditions that we will have decisions that are ultimately better for all. Well, Jessica, thank you very much for your time on that today. Thank you. That's Jessica Clogg, who's the Executive Director and Senior Counsel with West Coast Environmental Law. Uh, and just wanting to point out that all of this debate and discussion about the proposed changes and amendments to the Land Act, uh, she believes are not being understood properly. She thinks they're actually quite onerous for First Nations, that it's not all the hand everything over to First Nations that some people have portrayed it as, that it's a lot more red tape for them, and that BC is actually proceeding really slowly on this, which clearly is not the perspective I think that uh, we've heard on the other side of things or that people believe is happening. Uh, And so, yeah, there is a big job here for the government to fix where somehow the discussion about this has has gone off the rails a little bit. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.